Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregg. We're from bearmarriage.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based biblical advice for your sex life and your marriage. And this week on Bear Marriage, we are doing a special emphasis on biblical. This week and next week, we're going to take a closer look at what the Bible actually says about women and marriage and roles and all that fun stuff. We have an important interview to bring to you. I also have an announcement next week on February 8th, our Fixed It For You book launches. For those of you who follow me on social media and follow my blog, you'll know that every so often I put up a great graphic where I have a terrible, horrendous quote that some Christian author or teacher said, and then I fix it to make it Jesus-centered. And we have a book coming out on February 8th with 30 of those graphics, along with discussion questions and some teaching moments so that you can get together with your spouse, your friends, even your small group to talk about these issues that really matter and help see them more clearly. So look for that on February 8th. And now, without further ado, I would like to turn to our interview. I am delighted to bring on the Bear Marriage Podcast, Philip Payne, who is a biblical scholar. He has his PhD from uh, is it Oxford? I'm I'm missing it now. Cambridge. Oxford, Cambridge, PhD from Cambridge. He's taught at so many different places. Um, Cambridge, Fuller, Bethel, Gordon Cornwell. This this man knows his stuff. Um, he's written a lot of books on textual criticism, and he's done so much work on looking into the text and figuring out what God really thinks of women and how he wants us to treat each other. He has a new book coming out in April. I read it yesterday. I love it. It's called The Bible and Biblical Womanhood, and I want to go through that um, and just let you know this is a freedom message of what God really thinks of women. So, Philip, I am so glad you're here. Thank Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for letting me speak. <laughs> um, before we get started into your book, can you tell us what did you grow up believing about marriage, about women's and men's roles? I grew up in a traditional uh, dad is the head of the house type of home. Mm -hmm. uh, we had family council meetings every week, uh, mm -hmm. but it seemed like dad always had seven votes so the, the five children and mom, uh, whatever dad wanted, worked out. It actually worked out quite well. Uh, my father was a fun-loving. He had a song for every occasion. Uh, he was a remarkable biblical scholar. Uh, he did his PhD in Princeton uh, nine months after completing his PhM uh, at Princeton while teaching Semitic languages at Princeton. He knew, knew all the Semitic languages well. Uh, after breakfast and dinner, we'd read a chapter and everyone would read one verse. Whenever dad read, he gave a fresh translation straight from the Hebrew or the Greek, and I never heard him stumble on a single word of any passage in the scripture. Just, he knew it that well. Oh, that's but, amazing. Uh, he, uh, he took the family to Jordan for an archaeological expedition, and afterwards we went into Israel. And... When he would speak uh, in Hebrew, it was like Shakespeare coming back to London. <laughs> it just uh, he, that was that was his life, and it was great. Uh, we yeah. had uh, wonderful adventures. Uh, visited over thirty countries. Uh, I have gobs of memories. I love it. Uh, Dad was fun, and for me, it it seemed to work out really well. So when I went to Cambridge, 
uh, I had always attended churches where there were only men preaching, never mm -hmm. women. Um, and I remember in my uh, one of the very first lectures I attended at Cambridge, the lecturer stated that there is no passage in the New Testament properly understood in its original context that mm -hmm. limits the ministry of women. I almost stood up and shouted, that's not true. First <laughs> Timothy 2.12, right. which I had learned as, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. So, uh, but I didn't want to make enemies that early in my studies. So I decided I am going to get my ducks in a row so if anyone ever makes such a ridiculous claim in the future, I can instantly prove them wrong. Mm -hmm. So that night I went home and I read 1 Timothy in Greek. And I noticed a whole bunch of things. So the, the next night I read it again. And the next night, and I, I realized that virtually every sentence of the letter relates to issues in the first paragraph about the false teachers. Uh, the entire letter uh, is instructions on how to deal with a crisis in false teaching that was threatening the life of the church in Ephesus. Well, in light of that, and especially in light of the statement in chapter five, that some of the younger widows had already followed after Satan and were going about from house to house saying things they ought not. And of course, the church is met in the homes. Right. Uh, and it describes their false teaching as fluoroid, uh, purveyors of foolish philosophy. They're no, after the initial uh, false teachers have been excluded by Paul, mm -hmm. there are no references to any men being deceived by the false teachers, but there are plenty about women. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, it would make perfect sense for Paul to limit the teaching of women. Uh, I thought oh, this really threw I, you. You're I like, wow. I can't disprove this guy. I wonder about the other passages. And mm -hmm. so I began looking one after another. And like at First Timothy chapter three, you have these instructions for overseers. And every version I'd ever read said, he must be this. Uh, whatever man desires to be an overseer, he mm -hmm. must be. But in the Greek, it's whoever desires the office of overseer must be, mm -hmm. and not whatever man. And most versions have 10 to 14 masculine pronouns, he, him, his, embedded in those uh, requirements for the office of overseer. In Greek, there's not a single one. Uh, right. Everything flows from uh, whoever desires the office of overseer desires a noble task. Right. Uh, and then there's not a single masculine restriction after that. I had thought that the reference to a man of one woman, well, how can a woman be a man of one woman? So this must be a reference to uh, women overseers. But I found that Chrysostom, even though he says that women uh, should not be an authority over men, and uh, in fact, he says all kinds of things derogatory of women. Uh, when he comes to this passage, he says, uh, deacons must 
be men of one women, this is also appropriate to say regarding women deacons. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners, what's the word? Chris Chrysostom was a was an early Christian writer. Yeah, John Chrysostom was the bishop of Constantinople. Mm-hmm. The word Chrysostom means golden mouth. Right. Uh, he was the most eloquent and most prolific of any Christian writer. In fact, there's only one Greek writer in all of antiquity with more words preserved of his teaching than Chrysostom, and that's Galen, uh, the medical writer. Mm-hmm. So Chrysostom had huge influence on the church, but he recognized that when the Greek text does not limit it to man, uh, and when it begins with whoever, this must apply to all people. Right. Now, it, when we read our English text, we often see masculine pronouns. Uh, and we assume that, oh, this is referring to a man. However, in Greek, it was conventional. Whenever you're speaking about a group of people, mm-hmm. uh, you use the masculine form. Uh, yeah, French does it too. French does it too. If there's a group, you use il in the, in the plural. And so the, yes. the, the masculine form uh, does not exclude women. Mm-hmm. In fact, the presumption is it would include them unless the context excludes them. Uh, Tim Freiberg, who's a complementarian, a friend of mine uh, and the editor of the Analytical Greek New Testament, has done a study of every occurrence of masculine forms in the New Testament. And he found that in the New Testament, there are between 7,500 and 8,000 cases where there's a masculine form that either must apply to women or could apply to women. Hmm. That's almost one per verse in the right. New Testament. It's very, very common. Right. Furthermore, especially when you have the form whoever, uh, so whoever would come after me, let him deny himself mm-hmm. and take up his cross and follow me. I mean, Jesus isn't saying this only for men. This right. is for all believers. And any Greek would understand that because they assume that. In fact, there are two places that Milligan in his grammar identifies, uh, even though the group is entirely women, women washing the body of a girl that had died, uh, and women weeping and wailing in a funeral, Mm -hmm. Uh, the masculine form is used to describe that group of women, because it's a group of people. Right. So, So you do this research, and your eyes are opened, and you realize that all the arguments for men being over women aren't true. And so I want to walk through um, some of the things that you talk about in your book, because I know that these are questions that my listeners are going to have. So uh, let me let me just start out by asking a basic question. Should the view of women actually matter? We often get told this is just a secondary issue. Um, it, it isn't it mm-hmm. isn't primary. And so should we really mm-hmm. be fighting over this? So why do you think? the view of women is so important. I think Paul describes it in Galatians chapter two. Uh, In Galatians two, remember, the visit by Peter and then a group of people from Jerusalem had come uh, and then 
because of their influence, Peter withdrew from table fellowship with the Gentiles. Yes. And Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, 11, I confronted Cephas to his face, face. <laughs> and told him, you are acting contrary to the gospel. Mm -hmm. You're a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. So this is very strong language. And he follows up in the next chapter with a theological basis for why this is important to the gospel. And he says, in Christ, there is no Jew-Greek division. There is no slave-free division. There is no male-female division, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. To him, this was a gospel issue, the, the standing uh, before Christ. And I think we find it's important uh, in looking at the history of missions. Mm -hmm. uh, look at the role that women have had in missions in spreading the gospel. It's been enormous. Uh, if we exclude women from any aspect of ministry, this will hinder the spread of the gospel. But my grandmother uh, and grandfather were missionaries in Japan. And my mother was born in Osaka. So I grew up with a fascination about things Japanese. And in fact, immediately after college, instead of going to med school, uh, I chose to go to Japan as a short-term missionary. Mm -hmm. And I found that in the history of Japanese missions, uh, women did not have nearly as prominent a place as they had in Korea. In Korea, the Bible woman was the backbone of the church planning effort and the backbone of the church growth. Mm -hmm. uh, today, the Christian church in Korea is far stronger than in Japan. Uh, after I finished my doctorate, I immediately went to Japan as a missionary, mm -hmm. the Evangelical Free Church. And while I was there, I had so many discussions with missionaries who were women who said, my Japanese co-workers are urging me to teach and preach. And I don't feel comfortable about that because of my Bible background. Mm -hmm. background. Uh, and yet I feel like the Holy Spirit's calling me to do this. What should I do? <laughs> and there's this great tension. And so I was able to show, well, why is it you think this might not be wrong? And we looked at those passages and realized scripture doesn't restrict that at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a misunderstanding. And <laughs> So many uh, women who were missionaries there felt that freedom. Yes, I can follow the Spirit's guidance. Mm -hmm. I can use the gifts the Spirit's given to me. Uh, and it gave freedom to the church. But some of those same women, when they went back to America, they could not, in U.S. churches, do what they'd done in Japan. Right. Right. You know, interestingly, you also said, and I've heard this before, that the same passages that were used to defend slavery by Christians yes. 150 years ago are being used today to defend limiting 
women. That is exactly true. Yeah. And, and back in those days, a lot of Christians didn't speak up, even though they knew slavery was wrong because they didn't want to cause divisions. Yes. And they, they really perpetuated a lot of harm. And are we doing the same thing today? Right. There's another aspect, and that has to do um, with the importance in marriage of having a relationship of mutual submission, mutual love. Um, I grew up assuming, in fact, long after I had concluded that women could do anything in the church. And by the way, my father, even though he was the head of the house and believed that uh, he had the right to make the final decision uh, in church, he recognized that there should be no restrictions on women in the ministry. And he taught that. Uh, and he hits some feet, he opposition because of that. So for me, long after I had concluded that the, the New Testament encourages all believers to exercise the gifts that the Spirit gives them for the common good, and mm -hmm. that there's no restriction on who can be an elder, who can be an overseer, uh, it's God's calling and gifting that prevail. Nevertheless, I was keen when I got married that my wife would uh, vow to submit to my authority. Mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of enjoyed having that power, um, the authority of being the head of the house. Uh, well, um, gradually, as I studied, uh, and I studied the use of the word head in Greek, I realized I have misunderstood this passage. Mm -hmm. um, I, I began to study the different lexicons, and I found virtually all uh, secular Greek lexicons uh, give no support for the word head, meaning person in authority over, or person in rank before, as Bdag listed. Uh, and Virtually, uh, from the very beginning of the Greek dictionary history, even going back to the ninth century, uh, the, the meaning head as source is explained in Greek dictionaries. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the 12th century, and in the 15th century, the 16th century, and you have, the, I could give you a list of 20 dictionaries if we want to take all the time mm -hmm. uh, that list the meaning source. Source and to, to clear to clarify what you're saying is that the Greek word for the husband is head of the wife is kafale, and in these Greek dictionaries it says that kafale means source. It doesn't mean authority. Exactly. Over. Exactly. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, the, the correct pronunciation is kafale. Oh, sorry. Yes, kafale. Kafale, and the. It's interesting, so many people have uh, read the work of Wayne Grudem, and Wayne Grudem makes the following statement. This is on page 206 of the book. All recognized dictionaries for ancient Greek or their editors now give kephale, the meaning person in authority over or something similar, but none give the meaning source. I thought, that's a, 
that's virtually the opposite of the truth. Now, you have these uh, dozens of Greek dictionaries listing the meaning source. I have not found a single secular Greek dictionary that lists even one example of head meaning person in authority over prior to the fourth century AD, 300 years after the New Testament. Right. Uh, not, not one example and tons of examples where it means source. Sort My, of like, think, think of it for our listeners, think of it as head of a river, like the source of exactly. the river. Exactly, yes. for, for instance. And it's yes. not just in the plural, but Galen twice used the singular to refer to the head, kephale, of the river, meaning its source. Uh, mm -hmm. And yeah. it's, it's, the context makes it unquestionably clear he's referring to source. Well, I came back to the passage, and I, I look at Ephesians 5, and I see verse 22 translated in most of our versions. In Greek, it is verse 21, submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. Mm -hmm. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord, because man is the source of woman, as also Christ is the source of the church. He, the savior of the body. And then he goes on to explain that Christ gave himself up for the church. That's what brought the church into existence. He mm -hmm. was the source. Well, but my translations in English all said, wives, submit to your husbands. But Jerome said, there's not a single Greek manuscript that has the word submit in that sentence. Mm -hmm. It derives the verb from the beginning of the sentence, submitting one to another. Mm -hmm. And that's a reciprocal pronoun. It's not reciprocal unless it goes both ways. Yes. So the context for the call for wives to submit to the husbands is in the context of mutual submission. If you were a Hellenistic reader uh, and you read this, uh, what would strike you is this amazing series of commands the husbands to love their wives mm -hmm. and to give themselves for their wives and then nurture their wives. This is revolutionary in the culture. It's just absolutely uh, the striking point of the chapter. We come to the passage and we read it and the, the big focus is on wives submit to your husbands. But the verb submit is not even in that sentence. The yeah. verb that it's depending on is mutual submission. Yeah. But the longest passage in Paul about marriage is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And yeah. in that passage, 12 times he addresses an issue and addresses husbands and wives equally. Mm -hmm. He says, <clears throat> the wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. And the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Mm -hmm. In Greek culture, that, that is radical. Yeah. Uh, it's just mind-blowing. And in every one of the 12 instances, Paul uses parallel symmetrical language to reinforce that husbands and wives have equal rights, equal responsibilities. Right. And it applies it to all these 12 different areas. So... Having looked at those passages again and realized 
that this mutual submission is fundamental. And it's not just in the passages about marriage. Every time says Paul uses the one another expression, it's, it's treating the other as oneself. The, the one another's are so egalitarian in their focus. And I realized my wanting to be the head of the home is not a biblical idea. Mm -hmm. Well, when dad came to Japan, uh, he'd been giving lectures in all over India and Korea and Japan. Uh, he wanted to climb Mount Fuji. Mm -hmm. Dad's an avid mountain climber. He climbed Mount Olympus and Mount Whitney and many mountains. And um, this was his one chance to climb Mount Fuji. Well, the day he planned to go, the weather was terrible. And it was raining and windy. And mom said, Bart, don't, don't go. No, it's just, this is not, not safe. And, and he said, I want to go. And I have the right to go. And I said, Dad, look, look at the weather. This would be crazy to climb Mount Fuji today. And my wife said, please don't go. And, but Dad said, no. I, this is my only chance. I am going to, I won't cause anyone any trouble. And he went. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'll see you. We were going to move from Tokyo down to Kyoto that mm -hmm. same weekend. He said, I'll see you back in Kyoto. So he went. And when we got back in Kyoto, the day he was supposed to arrive, he didn't arrive. And I called the, the people in Tokyo where we'd been staying and where he'd been teaching, and none of them had heard what had happened. So they sent teams of students from the seminaries where he'd been teaching to Mount Fuji to look for Martin. And because the weather was so stormy, the, the authorities would not permit the Americans to send in helicopters to look. Furthermore, they said, Anyone who comes to climb Mount Fuji alone intends to commit suicide, and we shouldn't try to stop that. Right. Well, we knew that wasn't bad. So students were searching, and I came up and to join the search. One of the people that had talked to Dad about this before going up there said, I remember telling him, this is the path you take to go up to Mount Fuji. And when the ranger heard that he said no you let him up that path that path leads to a place where many people have died mm -hmm. it's just the path up to the circular path around the mountain uh, but because so many people go up there it looks like the path continues beyond the circular path mm -hmm. so then the the searchers went up that path to look and one team had an experienced hiker who got a cramp high up on the mountain. And he never had a cramp. He's this great hiker, but at that point he had a cramp. Because of that, the rest of the search party spread out. And one of them found dad's body up there. Mm -hmm. uh, I came up the next day and helped carry the body down. Uh, and I realized if only dad had believed in mutual submission yeah. and that he he was not the head 
of the family with final authority, but he <laughs> owed submission to his wife, he would not have gone up there. He would not have died on Mount Fuji. He was 56 years old. Yeah. A brilliant scholar. Uh, he had been the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. It was such a loss. And I realized this is not a minor issue. This is a major issue, which huge impact on the lives of every marriage. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, thank you for sharing that. I know that's, that's just heartbreaking, but I, I hear the passion that you have. And um, in your book, you say that you're really passionate about two things. You know, you say that you're you're trying to argue both for biblical inerrancy yes. and the equality of women. Yes. And yet so many people say you can't have both. Well, actually, it's a lot harder to uphold inerrancy and to demand a hierarchy in marriage mm -hmm. than the other. Let me give you an example. People often say that 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35 must be part of the New Testament authoritative text. And it says women must be silent in the churches, mm -hmm. for they are not permitted to speak, yes. but must be in subjection, as even the law says. Mm -hmm. If a woman desires to learn that or ask her husband at home, for it is a disgrace for a woman to speak in church. Mm -hmm. Well, let's just think about that. It's preceded by, I desire you all to prophesy. Mm -hmm. It's followed by, I desire you all to prophesy. Mm -hmm. How are women going to prophesy <laughs> if they're silent? <laughs> well, that's really hard to do. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul actually gives explicit instructions on how women are to prophesy. In exactly. Yes. He's, he's, been, he's been saying this. And furthermore, you have, you know, Philip's daughters who prophesied. You have the prophecy of Elizabeth, of Mary. Uh, Anna. <laughs> Hannah. You know, all these Anna, yeah. Old Testament women prophets as well as New Testament. Huldah, Deborah. And how... Can women prophesy if they're silent? Well, the complementarian answer is typically, it's not absolute silence here. It is a restricted silence. The only thing that is being permitted is the questioning of prophets. Well, that was actually six topics earlier, and no one reading that letter would have understood that. And in fact, no commentator in the entire history of Christian exegetical research has ever suggested until 1950 in Australia uh, that this might refer to the questioning of prophets. But if it does refer to the questioning of prophets, then verse 34 permits women that is not questioning prophets, because that's the only thing being prohibited. Okay. Mm -hmm. But verse 35 prohibits speech that has nothing to do with questioning of prophets mm -hmm. about women asking questions out of a desire to learn. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Out of desire to learn implies that the person asking the question does not know the answer and wants to learn mm-hmm. out of a desire to learn. When you're judging a prophet, you know the answer and you heard something that was wrong and you're criticizing that, that wrong answer. So that view, and it's the view that's upheld by almost the entire complementarian community now, according to that view, verse 34 permits what verse 35 prohibits. <laughs> right. that, that's a contradiction. How yeah. do you uphold inerrancy and also a contradiction? Mm-hmm. As I've studied the passage, it, I must admit, for many years, I defended interpretations of that passage that I now realize are implausible. Mm-hmm. Uh, no first century reader would have read it the way I was interpreting it. Are you excited by what Philip Payne is sharing? Does this idea that biblical womanhood does not mean something where we are less than, but instead is about who God made us to be and that we can fully exercise our gifts? If that is exciting to you, do check out our biblical womanhood merchandise. We have two different designs. What it means to be a biblical woman, where you can pray like Hannah, where you can teach like Priscilla, where you can lead like Deborah, where you can win battles like Jael. So check that out. And we also have our biblical womanhood merch. Where What does biblical womanhood mean? Well, it's prayer and tent pegs and prophecy and leadership and preaching the gospel to all that will hear. The link for those things are in the podcast notes. You can get mugs, um, stickers, magnets, canvas tote bags, t-shirts, anything. And let's spread the message that God loves women too. Okay, let's get back. Let's get back to some of the things that that you found about women. So in your book, The Bible and Biblical Womanhood, you go through really systematically the Bible versus biblical. Right. The Bible versus biblical. Sorry. Because I'm arguing that biblical womanhood as defined today, namely women being subordinate in submission Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, only men being leaders in the church. Only men having authority over men, only men teaching. That idea of biblical womanhood, that is not biblical. It's the Bible versus biblical womanhood. Right, exactly. Okay, so in it, you, you start at the beginning of the Bible and you work through all the major passages that people use to limit um, yes. women in some way and you show why that isn't a proper interpretation and then you answer some objections. And I want to just touch on a couple of them. There's too many to deal with sure. in their entirety, um, but I really encourage people to get the book. It's really readable. It's going to answer all your questions. It's really well done. It's so biblically based. Um, but I, I want to bring up some of the common things that I hear a lot and, and throw them to you so that you can answer them. So one of them, um, Jesus chose only male disciples. Yes. What do well, you say to that? <laughs> okay. Well, it, at first glance, this doesn't appear to indicate Jesus is giving special authority to the men. However, when you think about it, think about the logic. Jesus chose only male apostles, therefore only males can be church leaders. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, Jesus chose only Jewish apostles. 
Therefore, could Gentiles be church leaders? Well, of course they can be church leaders. Uh, so the logic breaks up. Uh, Jesus chose only three persons as apostles. Mm -hmm. Therefore, slaves could not be church leaders. Mm -hmm. And yet Onesimus became the bishop of Ephesus. He was a church right. leader. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the logic uh, breaks down. But furthermore, it's not just the logic. The idea that Jesus chose only male apostles, therefore only males can be apostles. But Paul says in the closing of Romans 16, 7, he greets Andronicus and Junia. Mm -hmm. The Junia is a wo common woman's name, for which we have no evidence of it being a man's name. Uh, the only person in all of church history that identified it as a man also in, interpreted Priscilla as a man. So, right. <laughs> even though Priscilla and Aquila are obviously a yeah. married couple, so, yes. So, so that doesn't really count. And it's not just that Junia is an apostle; she's epistemos. She's outstanding among the apostles. Mm -hmm. So, yes, women can be apostles. They can be outstanding among the apostles. Who were the two people in the early church who had the greatest influence? They were Paul and James. So when there was a Jerusalem council mm -hmm. uh, assembled, James is the one who takes the lead mm -hmm. and gives the conclusion. A and Paul, it's his position that's approved. Mm -hmm. Well, they were not of the 12. Yeah. <laughs> they led the church. Therefore, to say the 12 define church leadership, it breaks down. Now, Jesus never explains why he chose 12, but I think there are two reasons that are pretty obvious for this. One is that Jesus spent a lot of time, uh, like at the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he's out in the wilderness with his disciples. If women had been disciples along with Jesus, it would have undermined the uh, credibility not just of jesus but of the other apostles mm -hmm. because they're out there gallivanting with these women mm -hmm. secondly we have all through the new testament so many references to the 12 representing the 12 tribes of israel mm -hmm. so this is the new israel in christ right and so in order to parallel the 12 patriarchs you needed 12 apostles who were men now i love i love what you said too later about how mary magdalene became the apostle to the apostles oh yes and that was that and that that was given to her by jesus that was deliberate choosing a woman to tell the men that jesus had wrote had risen yeah and jesus didn't choose her because he knew she would be effective and persuade everyone that Jesus is alive. They didn't believe her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, if, if you look at all four Gospels, it's really a put down on the 12. They, they, again and again, they misunderstand Jesus. They misunderstand the type of leadership he wants in church. Jesus wants servant leaders. He mm -hmm. wants people who will wash the feet. Uh, mm -hmm. If you look at the terms of leaders, in the New Testament, you have diakonos, 
It's a servant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the, Paul speaks of himself as a doulos, a slave of Christ, again and again and again. In fact, when Paul refers to other Christian leaders as a servant or a slave, that's the highest praise he can give them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have uh, the archon. The right. archon is the, the Greek word for the ruler, uh, mm-hmm. the person uh, in rank before who has control over. There is, I'm not saying that there is no leadership in the church or that leadership is not important because Paul does say first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And he he desires, I want you all to desire the higher gifts, especially that you might prophesy. Mm -hmm. And, And women prophesy all through the New Testament. So, and the Old Testament. So, and, and the prophecy is closely associated with authoritative speech from God. Mm-hmm. But in every case, church leadership is derived. It is not intrinsic. Right. So a person may be a bishop, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean he's always right. Mm-hmm. A person may be a prophet, but that doesn't mean you should not examine the prophecy to see if it's true. Mm-hmm. You want the other prophets to weigh the prophecy. Paul says, even if I or an angel from heaven should preach a different gospel, don't believe it. Yeah. So it's not because I am an apostle. Therefore, everything I say, you have to believe and obey. Mm-hmm. So the, it's the authority comes from the Holy Spirit who gifts and who guides and uh, who gives us a message to proclaim to the people. I love that. Okay, let's let's move into Acts, the book of Acts, and go into chapter five. Um, and I love your take on Ananias and Sapphira and what that tells us about how Peter saw male headship. So yes. can you elaborate on that? Okay, first Ananias is called in. And Peter says, is this the amount that you got for selling the property that you're given to the church? And I said, yes. And Peter says, how could you lie to the spirit? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, Ananias falls over and the young men take him out and bury him. Uh, later, Sapphira comes in. Who's his wife? His who's wife. His wife. Mm-hmm. And uh, she knew about the plan. And she knew what it was sold for. She knew that they're giving part of it and withholding part of it. And Peter said, is this the amount you receive for the property? He said, yes, it is. And uh, she dies. And the young men take her out and bury her. So the question is, is this supporting or is it undermining the idea of the husband as the head of the wife, the head of the family, the one Uh, to whom the wife should always defer and submit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Should Sapphira have submitted to Ananias's plan to do this? Well, I think the evidence of the dead bodies makes it pretty clear that was Mm -hmm. was not the right thing to do. Well, what should she have done? Well, she should have told the truth. Right. So if one starts with the assumption that the husband has the authority 
And the wife has an obligation to submit to whatever the husband does and to support it. Then this is, here's a Bible story <laughs> that makes it very clear that is not what God intends. Yeah. And it also, it also shows that she wasn't let, yeah, she, cause she wasn't let off the hook. If they really believed that Ananias was the head and so he had the right to make decisions then she would not have been punished like that's i think that's what's so interesting because they would have said yeah because he's responsible for her sin he's responsible for that and she's not but that's not what happens <laughs> no and i think it's significant that the spirit included this in inspired scripture mm -hmm. the, the spirit's saying caution yeah type it, of understanding of marriage is wrong mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's not just my opinion look what god did yeah yeah okay let's let's move on into the book of romans um okay. or maybe this is still an acts i can't remember but let's talk about phoebe you you mentioned this word a minute ago diakonos okay which is usually translated as deacon in the new yes. testament but when it applies to phoebe people have often translated it as servant even though it's the same word. <laughs> so can you tell us about Phoebe, who she was and what role she played? Okay, Phoebe is remarkable. Uh, Phoebe is the one to whom Paul entrusted his most important letter to the Romans. Mm -hmm. And Phoebe brought it to the church in Rome. We know that because chapter 16, verses one and two says, I commend to you Phoebe. Well, how does he commend someone if she's not there? Right. So she and and how do they know that she's the one because uh, she has brought the letter? Were there other people with Phoebe? I don't know. However, if there were other people, let's say that in addition to Phoebe, he sent his favorite friends, uh, Timothy and Titus, and maybe some others too, and uh, some elders from the church. You got this group of people all protecting this precious manuscript. Well, how would you feel if you were Timothy? And by the way, seven of Paul's letters refer to Timothy as being involved in producing the letter. So I mean, he's really involved a lot. Mm -hmm. He's up there. Uh, and the, the letters read, I commend to you, Phoebe. <laughs> it goes on. He never commends Timothy. He never commends. <laughs> he never commends these other people. Uh, it's kind of a put down to them. Mm -hmm. If he's commending one. Furthermore, he says, whatever she asks you to do, do it. But they don't. Whatever Timothy asks you to do. <laughs> It's kind of a put down for all the other people if it's a, mm -hmm. if it's a group of people. So furthermore, we find in Paul's letters that he uh, repeatedly, when there are more than one person involved, he specifies that. So he says, I sent to you Timothy and the brother. Mm -hmm. Okay, Someone else is acknowledged there. Uh, when he's sending people to take a gift from the church in Corinth to Jerusalem, uh, he says, I sent the brothers to you. 
-hmm. And of course, anthropoi could include women as well as men. That is the standard term in Greek for brothers and sisters. But in that case, and he refers again to a group of people that they approve carrying the gift back to Jerusalem. So there, there are references to multiple people uh, traveling together, carrying something precious. But in that case, it's a sum of money. Mm-hmm. Where, uh, having people to protect the money was important um, to keep the money safe. Right. <laughs> uh, it also takes away the any implication that somebody might have embezzled funds because it's under group control. Mm-hmm. I don't know if someone else came with, with Phoebe, but if it was someone else, it would not have been someone as important in Paul's eyes as Phoebe. Mm-hmm. And what I find particularly significant is the way Phoebe is described here. Uh, she is described as deacon of the Church of Cancrio. That's a specific title, deacon of the Church of Cancrio. Mm-hmm. Churches at that time didn't have servants. Right. They met in someone's home, and the person might have a servant in the home, but the church didn't have a servant. So it wouldn't fit the context to say servant. Yeah, and, to, and, and, and just to clarify, the reason this is an issue is that in English translations of the New Testament, the, the deacon of re- referring to servant <laughs> is used when it was a woman who was called a deacon. And it, what, what you're thinking, what I'm thinking <laughs> is that this was, a, this was a biased translation because the translators didn't want to acknowledge that a woman could have been a deacon because the name is, the word is the same. When, <laughs> if, it's, if it's referring to men or women, it's diakonos. It's the same word. So uh, several things come here. Uh, the expression... Autos, or aute, diakonos, and the, the, the form of the term is masculine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's, she is a diakonos, not a diakone. So, mm-hmm. so some translators say deaconess, but it's mm-hmm. not a feminine form. It's a masculine form. Now she, and it doesn't say a deacon, just she, deacon of the Church of Cancrio. And it goes on to says, uh, Give her whatever she needs because she has been a prostatus of many, including myself also. Well, prostatus is the term used for the president of the synagogue or the president of an association. Mm-hmm. For she has been the prostatus of many, including myself also. Well, some people have said, Maybe it means she is the benefactor of many. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's a wealthy woman. She was generous. Problem is, we know from first century documents that benefactors were called euergetes. It's a different term. Mm-hmm. It means you, which means good, and ergos, like an air power, people who do good works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people who were benefactors like to be called people who do good works because it associates them not so much with power as with generosity, right? Uh, doing good things. So uh, <clears throat> today as well, people like to be called benefactors. 
in the New Testament, whenever the word benefactor occurs, it's euergetes, not prostates. And mm -hmm. whenever the term prostates is used in the New Testament, no matter whether it's a verb or a preposition, uh, I mean a verb or a participle or a noun, it is always associated with leadership. Right. Who is an overseer must govern well. That the prohisteme, the verb, uh, the, the same word. Uh, some people said maybe it means patron, mm -hmm. something like benefactor, but patron, uh, because it's a patron client society, and it's a it's a huge part of first century culture. Uh, the patron is the one who provides financial support for someone else, mm -hmm. and. The client then has an obligation to do whatever the patron wants them to do. And particularly, the term patronus in Latin refers to the one who became the legal representative of a foreigner, mm -hmm. uh, someone who did not have uh, their own Roman citizenship, uh, but needed protection. Uh, the problem is that Paul was a Roman citizen, so he didn't need a <laughs> He didn't need a patron. C.K. Barrett says that meaning cannot apply to Paul. But let's go to the other, the patron client. Would Paul have put himself into a patron client relationship where he was obligated to do whatever the patron said? Yeah. No. If you, if you read Paul's letters, it's chock full of statements that I worked with my own hands mm -hmm. and uh, I was not dependent on anyone. And mm -hmm. so this, this, he was a fiercely independent, uh, not under anyone else's control type of guy. Right. So while I can't 100% exclude the possibility that uh, it could have meant patron, because it is the normal expression for the president of society, and because we already know from deacon of the Church of Cancria that she's a leader of the church in Cancria, mm -hmm. it makes sense to understand that she has been a leader of many, including myself also. Well, when Paul wrote to churches, he told them to submit to one another. Mm -hmm. And he said to submit to your leaders, honor them, give, give those who teach and work in the word double honor. Mm -hmm. well, if, if he's in the Church of Cancria, and she's a leader of the church, and she has that responsibility. Would Paul submit to her leadership? Well, if he does what he tells everybody else to do, he would have to. <laughs> right. So it, it makes sense. So this is dangerous terminology to anyone who believes that women should not have authority over men. Mm -hmm. Because here you have Paul saying that she has been a leader of many, including myself also. Right. Now, if you look at Romans 16, we're just beginning here. There are uh, a whole bunch of people who are given greetings. Of those, 10 are identified specifically for their Christian ministry, their work in the gospel, for mm -hmm. working hard in the gospel. And uh, seven of the 10 are women. Yeah. Seven of 10 are women. If Paul did not believe in women leadership in the church, would he have identified seven of ten? And by the way, of the three men that are there, two are listed with their wives. Yeah. So the husband-wife teams are working together mutually. 
Mm-hmm. And Andronicus and Junia, who are mentioned here, they are both outstanding among the apostles. Yeah. So you have this, and he begins with Phoebe and calls her a postatus, like president of the association, uh, and deacon of the Church of Cancria, apostle. This is, I do not know of any surviving Hellenistic literature where such a high proportion of an open society are women yeah. listed as leaders of that society. This is remarkable. Uh, Romans 16 is an honestly remarkable chapter. I've really appreciated Philip sharing this with us. We've decided to break his interview into two because we have so much more to share. So you're going to hear the end of that interview next week on the podcast. But thank you so much for joining us. Remember, next week, the Fixed It For You book also launches. So it's going to be a great week here. And I know that you're going to want to listen to the rest of what Philip Payne has to say. Remember, you can pre-order his book, The Bible Versus Biblical Womanhood. The link is in the podcast notes. It's a great one to pre-order. You're going to love it. I found it so easy to read um, and just really insightful and very focused on scripture. So check that out and we will see you again next week for the end of this interview. Bye-bye.